Hello, everyone. Our first reading tonight is Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And our second reading is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Great to be with you tonight and uh, looking forward to sharing uh, with you further in this series on um, what I think is one of the most important topics in our world at the moment, um, a vision of human being. Uh, There are few things I'd suggest both harder to deny and at the same time easier to ignore than the fact that we need others, that others matter Massively, that in so many ways we are profoundly dependent upon other people and on other things. This degree of interdependence that's woven into the fabric of creation is uh, one of the things that means that community, whether that's the community of friends or families and clans, communities of businesses and firms or nations, Or at its broadest level, our community with the non-human creations, the animals and plants and the land on which we all find our lives lived out. Community is crucial. And yet at the same time, it's perhaps also obvious to say that we seem to be less and less capable as a species of living in such communities in even a basically competent manner at all. Pollution and environmental degradation speak volumes for our ability to live in balance with the ecosystems upon which we depend, let alone the descent of 
That business of reconciling differences in our collective vision of our community life that we call politics into just so much tribalism and mutual contempt and hate speech. The fact is that the corporate reality of what God is doing in the world, that, that his reconciling of all things to himself in Jesus Christ, his bringing of all things to their summation and completion under the loving lordship of Jesus Christ, and particularly, as the Apostle puts it in our reading from Ephesians 2, that great project of making for himself one new humanity. The corporate reality of what God is doing in the world is fundamental to the gospel. Some people might be able to explain the gospel of God without referring to the church of Jesus Christ or the kingdom of God or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But neither Jesus nor the apostles managed to do that, and nor should we. And so, as I say, we continue in our series on what it is to be human, being fully alive. Uh, we're going to make sure that we don't make the mistake of a kind of sub-biblical, radical individualism. Instead, we're going to take account of and build in the communal dimensions of the gospel. We're going to do that in a way that doesn't compromise what I'm going to suggest we call a biblical individualism, and holding those two things together is going to stretch us. So I'm going to break down uh, this sermon tonight into three points. Firstly, the embeddedness of community. Secondly, the breakdown of community. And then thirdly, the healing of community. The embeddedness, the breakdown, and the healing of community. And so first then, the embeddedness of community. Uh, one of the ways I found it helpful to I reflect on the many communities of which we are a part and upon which we depend is to add adjectives to the front of them uh, in order to help us be specific. So, for example, every single one of us is necessarily part of a genetic community. That is, to get born, you need to have two other people do something. Normally the usual thing. These days there are donors and surrogates, but either way, you still need two people to do something. We call this fundamental genetic community a family. And living well in family is hardwired into both what it is to be human and to be Christian. The Apostle Paul is very clear. He rests on the commandment to honour father and mother as he instructs parents and children to live in households as they live out the life of faith in Jesus Christ. Genetic community. So let me give you another example. We are physically dependent upon hundreds and hundreds of of other people and beyond them, animals and plants and land in what you might call physical community. Uh, I want to invite you to do a thing at the moment, which is to take a look at the shoes you're wearing right now. I'm, 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 I mean it. Have a look. Look down. Yes, inspect. You, you, may, you could even take a look at other people's shoes and, and decide, you know, just how trendy they are, or you're not, or you are. So what I want you, what I want you to do is, everyone, put your hand up who made their shoes themselves. Hands up if you made your shoes yourself. Do you know, let me just give you a surprise. We are not for about 150 people today. No one made their own shoes. In fact, probably dozens of people's efforts went into the making of your shoes. And when you add to that the clothes that you wear and the footpaths that you walk on or the car that you drove tonight or the house that you walked back to this evening... That number, that dependence, that physical dependence you have multiplies into hundreds, if not thousands of people. 
In each case, you're the beneficiary of someone else's work. And likewise, there are, there are hundreds, possibly thousands, who are or will be the beneficiaries of your work, whatever it might be. I think one really helpful way I've learned to think about how to conceive of these two particular communities, these communities of family and work, is to say that work involves loving often many people in a few ways. Family and friends involves loving a few people in many ways. Work, whether it's teaching maths or fixing electrical wiring or operating on people's knees or pouring concrete, whatever it might be, is loving many, many people in just a few ways, quite specifically. Being part of a family is to love really not very many people at all, but in a whole wide range and variety of ways. Either way, the point that it's highlighting is that the way we are part of communities by the necessities of being human and by the affinities we establish with friends and partners, it's love that makes communities work. And of course, it doesn't stop there. We're not only genetically and physically dependent upon those various communities, we're also biologically dependent upon the food and the water that we eat and drink, the the plants and animals that we eat, the ground that they draw their sustenance from, as well as the the rocks and the minerals that are turned into bricks and bearers and joists to make walls and roofs and ceilings and cars and phones and scalpels. And and there's one more step to go. There, There never have been human communities living out all of these interdependencies without some sort of centralised authority, what we call the state or government. Whether at the level of the clan, which is just one basically large extended family, or the tribe, which is several large extended families together, or the nation, which is many, humans have always known this form of community as well, society. And the, the role of the state at its most fundamental level is coercive, It's to use coercive power, force, or at least the threat of force to protect this community from the threat of other communities on the outside. That takes the form of an army, whether a standing army or a militia, or to protect, uh, sorry, and to protect members of the community from threats internally as well, to resolve disputes, which is called the justice system of police and courts and legislators. In other words, we've, I mean, we've just taken a few minutes to kind of reflect on it a little bit, but you don't have to think very hard to realise that every one of us is embedded in a massively thick web of interlocking communities of necessity or affinity. We live profoundly interdependent lives. As I say, by necessity or by choice, as we partake in the communities around us. What's more, the Bible is deeply aware of this and speaks of what it is for those communities to function in a healthy or unhealthy manner. The the Psalms celebrate good community. You heard it in Psalm 133, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Note, that is the biblical vision for community. Very, very important to notice this. Unity. 
It's the key concept the Bible has for communities that function well because unity includes within it difference. Unity is always a unity of difference, dare I say it, a unity of inequality. Because people are different. Rather than a bland uniformity or even the Enlightenment version, which is a sort of a flattening, miserable equality. And Jesus brings to this vision of community one word, the the bonus commandment after the greatest commandment. You remember what it is? It's to love your neighbour. It's quite simple, really. We have our lives, each one of us, as part of intersecting neighbourhoods. And in the context of these communities, in ways that make sense and have substance in those various relationships, we are to love our neighbours. And... And And at the same time, it's also important to recognise that there are limits to community as well. Uh, Genetically, socially, physically, politically, recreationally, vocationally, our lives are communal. In some cases, that's chosen, affinity, men's shed, the netball club. Often it's simply given by necessity. But either way, we are irreducibly communal creatures in those aspects. And any form of radical individualism that fails to recognise and properly account for that fact is simply out of touch with reality. But spiritually and morally, we are individuals. Not, of course, that others don't impact us at the spiritual and moral level. That's true. But there is a limit to that influence. There is a boundary that must not be transgressed, which is the individual personhood of each human being. Responsible. Capable. God doesn't only love us communally. Uh, If you were with us last week, we saw this. God, in Jesus Christ, loved me and gave himself up for me, each me in this room as an individual. And and God doesn't judge us communally. Rather, each one of us individually will give an account to God, the apostle says, as the Lord brings to light the things now hidden in darkness and discloses the purposes of each one's heart. There is a point beyond which we mustn't go in embracing the communal realities of our lives and especially never coercively sacrificing individuals for community. Instead, we must respect what I'm suggesting we call biblical individualism. Not not the radical individualism that denies community altogether, but neither the radical communitarianism that denies individuality and especially wrongly imposes the will of the community on individuals. No, we need a biblical individualism. Uh, I've not asked his permission for this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. When my son, Miles, was a teenager, uh, and teenage boys are an interesting portion of the human species, uh, I think it would be fair to say, and uh, you you can agree with me on this one, uh, that uh, he wasn't quite performing up to his ability at school, as, you know, for the first maybe five and three-quarter years at high school. And there would be evenings when we would have gentle and lovingly encouraging conversations 
uh, about that, as parents often do with their teenage kids. And, and I would ask him, Miles, tell me, what's the code? What's the key to just, to just unlock, to, to turn on your focus and your effort? And, and I'd knock gently on his skull. Let me in. Let me in. Sometimes not so gently. I had reached a fundamental boundary of individual personhood in Miles. And I couldn't and mustn't transgress beyond that. And the good news is that, as the uh, really beautiful children's book Zagazoo puts it, shortly after that he turned into a polite, well-mannered young man. So, so community is the context in which individuals live out their lives. You see how I put that? To hold both of those two things together. Community is the context in which individuals live out their lives, communities of necessity and communities of affinity, and the glue that makes community work is love, which creates unity. Love, that uh, capacity to get outside yourself, that capacity to transcend your own perspective, to, to hold loosely to your own preferences and likes and even needs and to prefer others. As the Apostle puts it in Philippians chapter 2, to put them ahead of you. That's what love in community looks like. Or as the Apostle describes it, he says, that's what it is to have the mind of Christ. But of course, love is not the way that all communities work all the time to state the obvious and so point to the breakdown of communities. Communities break down because our loves are disordered. If we all loved small things a small amount and medium things a medium amount and large things a large amount because we love Jesus most of all because he loved us infinitely. If all of us did that all of the time, then communities would unfailingly work. But that's not how it is, is it? They constantly have disordered loves. And actually that's what they say about us too. And there are two aspects to this failure of community that we experience. On the one hand, there are those failures of community which are fundamental. They are breaches of what you might call public righteousness or justice. Um, that is, they are hurts caused or perpetrated against other members of the community which go beyond the level at which they can be sorted out as a matter of private reconciliation, but which so invade another person's fundamental individuality that domain of their inviolable personal sovereignty that if just left to individuals, they could multiply and corrode the whole community. And we have a dog. No worries. We're talking about community with the non-human world here, you see. Look, do you know there used to be a cartoon strip called Dogs Who Love the Lord? I, I think taking him against his will out of church is a thing that you can do to dogs but not people, right? You see right there, that's an important difference. I'm saying there are some breaches of community that violate a person's individual personhood. And so if just left for them to resolve themselves, 
Actually, it could multiply and corrode the whole community in general. This is things like violence against another person, which invades their physical sovereignty and so breaches the reality that they are the master of their own body and no one can ever be the master of someone else's body. Theft from another person, which invades their economic integrity or sovereignty. Uh, silencing another person or preventing them from meeting with those people they want to meet with in association. That offends their social uh, integrity and sovereignty. And these breaches of public justice, which cause the breakdown of community, at least in part to prevent private execution of vengeance, which inevitably escalates beyond what is just, to resolve those problems, it's the state that intervenes to uphold public justice. And so the, the police rightly arrests a murder suspect or the Ponzi scheme fraudster. And then evidence is gathered and a trial is held. And if convicted, the person is deprived of their freedom in jail or deprived of their assets in fines. I mean, just pause on that. Think about that for a moment. That, that's a remarkable situation where the fundamental human rights of an individual person to go about their business their own way or to keep their own stuff is breached by the government. It locks them in jail or takes away their stuff. And it's legitimate. It's why when someone else takes away your money under threat of violence, it's illegal. But when the state takes away your money under threat of violence, it's tax. And biblically, we're to pay our taxes. This is a proper role of the state because this is what we need when communities don't function perfectly, which none of them do. But I want you to notice a very, very important thing here. The state's role is quite a particular one. It upholds what are called people's negative rights. Okay, you've got to just focus here a little bit and think about this. People's negative rights, that is their rights, their human rights as individuals, which impose negative obligations on other people. Okay? Obligations to not do things. Obligations to not attack me. Obligations to not steal from me. Obligations to not stop me from meeting with my friends. Okay? Negative rights. It's a very different thing for the state to uphold people's positive rights. That is, rights which are said to impose positive obligations on other people to do things. Do you see the difference? Negative rights mean people shouldn't do stuff, don't crack my skull. Positive rights means someone's got to do something for me. And it's on this question. You want to know when you want pretty much all of political debate and disagreement and fighting is about? It's about this actual question. It's about this question on the role of the state with respect to positive rights, that the political differences and divisions with which we're familiar come to the surface. So, for example, some suggest, if you go home and Google up, uh, you know, uh, positive rights, you'll, you'll get to Wikipedia, and, and you'll find out the one positive right that some suggest is the positive right to employment. Okay, so that's a, a human right, so, so it's said. The right to employment. Uh, what that means is that I have the right that someone ought to give me a job and that if I don't have a job, then my human rights are being violated. 
And of course, that someone normally turns out to be the government and the way it does it is via taxation. Now, of course, understand it's a very great good if everyone is employed. But it's a different thing to say that there is a human right to employment such that if I'm not employed, my rights as a human being are being breached. And the same could be said for other positive rights, the right to education, the right to clean water, the right to reliable electricity, the right to health care, and so on and so on and so on. Did you see how this is the political issue? At the ends of the spectrum of negative and positive rights, things are reasonably clear. Most people would agree that it's correct for the state to legislate against kidnapping. Kidnapping is a really bad breach of public justice in community and will ruin community if it's just let go. Everyone mostly agrees that it's right for the state not to legislate against adultery or blasphemy or heresy. State shouldn't get involved in those kinds of things. So at the ends, it's pretty easy. It's in the middle where the disagreement comes. Now, um, we'll come back to who will uphold those positive goods if the state doesn't in a moment. But for now, notice on the other hand that there are failures of what you might call private righteousness or private justice. Um, This is anything between the endless minor relationship glitches that dog all imperfect people, the petty selfishnesses, the snubbing and the demandingness, the judgmentalism and the disinterest, all the way through to the active fights and feuds that sometimes erupt between people. If you've ever been to a local council meeting, if you've ever served on the PNC of a school, or if you're in an apartment building and go to a strata meeting, You see these kinds of things all the time, sometimes even in a fellowship group. And the thing that's needed here is the remarkable power of forbearance and forgiveness. Forbearance is the ability simply to let something go through to the keeper without it impacting you. Forbearance is the art of having a thick skin, that capacity simply not to take offence to not take what someone says or doesn't say too seriously, even as you take the person themselves perfectly seriously, so that their spikiness just doesn't draw blood. It applies to the myriad, myriad ways that we find irritation with one another or disappointment in one another. Um, I suspect that we each have different forbearance tanks. Some people have a very large, some people pretty small forbearance tank. And actually, we have, we have different abilities to forbear different kinds of things. Some people find, you know, words really hard to cope with. Other people, I don't care about words. I want to suggest that one of the marks of being a growing, maturing person is that you are getting more and more able to forbear more and more things. See, the, the way you normally get old is that you get less and less forbearing. The way people normally get old is that they become more insistent, less patient, more demanding, and more irritable. And and I want to suggest that this is just a practice you, you take stock of every new year. You ask yourself, one of the questions you ask yourself is, am I a more forbearing person this year than last year? Am I just able to let more stuff go through to the keeper Because community thrives on forbearance. Now, 
Don't get me wrong. Um, you can con other people that you're forbearing while you're seething, but you can't con yourself. That's not forbearing. Forbearing is letting it go without it affecting the relationship one little bit. And sometimes things can't be born. Sometimes they really do hurt. They really do draw blood. They cause real pain. And when that's the case, the only thing that keeps community going is forgiveness. Now, there's a, a great deal to say uh, here about forgiveness, which we're not going to get into tonight, just by way of summary. Uh, I think the scriptures lay out two stages with a possible third bonus stage to forgiveness, okay? Two stages with a possible third bonus stage. The first stage is forgive of forgiveness is the spiritual readiness for forgiveness, which is something that you do in your own heart and does not depend on the other person. That is incredibly important. It is enormously hard work at times to reach the point in your own heart when you're prepared, you're ready, you've got yourself into the place where you actually can forgive the other person. That's solitary work with you and God. It's unilateral work. It just involves you. But then there's the second part to forgiveness, the completion of forgiveness, if you like, which does depend on the other person and which is something that has to happen between you and them. And it's only when the second part happens that there's been full forgiveness. They say sorry and you say it's okay. We're okay. And then sometimes there's this bonus third stage, what you might call the crowning of forgiveness, which is not just getting ready to forgive and then actually getting past the wrong between you, but even full reconciliation and perhaps even a deepening of the relationship with both greater self-understanding and greater understanding of the other person. That can even happen too. Um, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul has this beautiful vision of community life. And he puts it really simply. He just says, bear with one another. That's the forbearance bit. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Forbearance, forgiveness. And at least to point three, you see, where are we going to get the spiritual resources to be more and more forbearing people? Where are we going to get the spiritual resources to be deeper and deeper forgiving people? Where are we going to get the spiritual resources to be the people who function as a community that goes beyond other people's rights to what their goods are? In other words, what is it that can bring about the healing of community? And the answer is a community of grace. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a celebration of the work of God in Jesus Christ that heals community. It is, it is awesomely communally oriented. And chapter 2 of Ephesians lays it out in the most dramatic terms. The context is one of near total community breakdown and failure. Uh, it, it, the context is of an ethnic hatred to rival anything like between Jews and Palestinians or Serbs and Croats or Republicans and Democrats. And Paul's conclusion is astounding. It's utterly compelling if it can be true. He, he says it in verse 16. He says, in Jesus Christ, God has put to death the hostility that destroys community. I mean, can you imagine that? 
He hasn't just kind of swept it under the carpet. He hasn't just sort of minimised it and pretended about it. He hasn't just sort of gently sort of parted ways and gone in different directions. He's crushed it. He's destroyed the hostility itself, which breaks communities apart. And you see how he's done it in verse 15. He's, in Jesus Christ, created in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And reconciled both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. You see, you see what the apostle says? In what Jesus has done is to carve out a new space, a new community, what Paul calls a new humanity. Uh, up until then, there were, at least according to Jewish custom, two kinds of human beings, two different humanities. There were Jews and the rest, that Jews and Gentiles. And what Jesus has done is so decisive, it's so powerful, that he's created this whole new one, a third kind of human being, a new humanity, or as the Apostle will put it later in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it's actually not quite a new humanity, it's a renewed humanity in the image of its creator, its original human being fulfilled. And the way that Jesus has done this is through the cross. He drags Jews and Gentiles into himself, into his body, and then that body dies on the cross. And Paul is deliberately and beautifully ambiguous here. On the one hand, the body is, of course, the actual blood and bones, physical body of Jesus Christ that walked and talked and ultimately was crucified and then died on that cross. And at the same time, that body is the church. This particular community, the outrageous, extravagant, impossible, but now made possible Jew plus Gentile church which is exactly how Paul introduces the idea of the body at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, the church, which is his body. In other words, Jesus takes both Jews and Gentiles into himself, into his body, and then that body dies on the cross, pays the price of sin, bears the judgment of hell, and so is made clean and pure and reconciled to God. And this is his point, and therefore also Reconciled to one another. Reconciled to one another. That is to say that the nature of our relationships in the body of Christ as a community in the church has exactly the same shape as the nature of our relationship to God. It's unbelievably important that you see this. Our community with one another in this space, the body of Christ, has the shape of grace. We are related to God by grace. And precisely because of that, we are related to one another by grace. Let me say it another way. We don't earn our peace and community with God, do we? We don't achieve it by being good or interesting, or together, or nice. That's not how it works. And we don't earn our peace and community with each other. We don't achieve a community with each other by being good, or by being interesting, or by being together, or by being nice. 
let me just tighten it a little bit further. You can't break your fellowship with God by failing at being good or interesting or together or nice. Because he has you by grace, right? And do you see what the implication of that is? It says we can't break our fellowship with each other by the myriad different ways in which we fail to be good or interesting or together or nice. We're messes. And that doesn't mess things up with God. And because what unites us is the body of Christ and what Jesus has done, when we're messes with each other, that won't break us up either. We relate to each other by grace. The exact same grace that God has extended to us. In other words, what I think Paul is saying here is that uniquely the church is not a community of necessity and it's not even a community of affinity, even though we might have particular things in common with others. But that's not what church is. That's just a sort of a icing on the cake. Now, we're not a community of necessity and we're not a community of affinity. We are a community of grace. And, and notice, that's not saying we've got to try hard to become one. No, no, that's just what we are by creation of God. And our calling, our vocation is then to live out our community life in such a transparent and gloriously grace-filled way that it shines like light in a dark place. Do you see how empowered for forbearance and forgiveness a community of grace is? How when you relate to others on the same basis that God has related himself to you, then you just will more and more have the capacity to let small things be just small things, to not take offence, to not get huffy. Again and again and again and again for years. To be gloriously Teflon so that things just slide off you. And that when they can't, when they do cut deep, that you have the spiritual resources to be prepared to forgive so that when the other person actually seeks your forgiveness, you, you, know, you, you cut them off before they even finish their speech. Do you know what this is like? Someone, someone says, hey, can we get together? Something I've got to raise. Yeah, and they start making the speech. The speech of, look, I'm really about that thing. I said that. And you cut them off. Like the father with the prodigal son, don't you think? You don't even let them finish their speech because you're so ready to forgive. Because forgiveness is so deeply scored into your soul. That's a community of grace. That's the body of Christ. And even more than that. It says we live out the life of a community of grace. We'll go way beyond the rights of other people. And we'll pour out our resources for their goods. Uh, we received an email this week from the not-for-profit agency Mission Australia asking us to partner with them. It turns out that they have a program that provides significant assistance to women who are rough sleepers and apparently uh, quite a number of such women uh, sleep rough in Ashfield and that one of the needs that they say churches could help meet 
is to provide food and personal hygiene hampers, and might we possibly be interested in doing that? And it took me all of two seconds to reply, absolutely. There is something profoundly bad about anyone sleeping rough, let alone women. And there is something profoundly right about non-government agencies like Mission Australia and churches banding together to say we are a community. We are bound together in spiritual, not legal, spiritual, much richer and deeper actually, spiritual obligations of love. To love our neighbours as ourselves. And if there are neighbours on our doorstep sleeping rough, then we stand ready to be neighbours to them. Because we know the grace of God. We live and breathe the grace of God. And so we extend the grace of God. That's our calling. To be a community of grace. Our question tonight, who are we together? What it is to be human, we've seen, is to be inextricably webbed into communities of all different sorts. Massively thick, interconnected web. Though it is true that there is an individual level beyond which community cannot and therefore must not transgress, what we've called biblical individualism, it's also true that as individuals, we live and work and rest and play and create and recreate and plan and execute and dream and scheme with others. We're creatures of community. Communities of necessity, communities of affinity. And in Christ, we know something even more. We know Jesus Christ because we are known by Jesus Christ. And so we know grace in Jesus Christ because we have been graced by Jesus Christ. And he has made us into a community of grace called to live out that grace with one another and extend that grace to a world which seems like it is growing more community incompetent every day. Because Jesus Christ came and proclaimed peace to those who are near and to those who are far off and he welcomed us home. Amen.